Welcome to the best podcast in and the world. <laughs> you know what I've been drinking? What? Alcohol? <laughs> Sometimes. Guilty. Sometimes. Guilty of charge. I've been drinking seltzer and just putting a little bit of bitters in it. People fucking love that. For it's the record. Great. I thought I started it. You didn't start it. You know, no I'll offense. I'll fucking finish it. But you're finishing it. You know what's fun, though, too? Huh. You've gotten different flavored bitters. Of course. I'm not an asshole. Okay, I well, have lemon flavored bitters that ooh. are out of this world. Is that your favorite? The lemon bitter? I like, a, I like a straight up, what is it called? Agast- Agastura? Agast- Agastura, yeah. I mean, Ang- is it Angastura? Angast- Ang- maybe it's Angastura. Maybe it's Ang- Angastura? Noted. It's, I like that one because it's bright red. You really feel like you're doing something when you add like it. It feels like a little Shirley Temps. It, it feels like you're a witch or something, making a potion the well, way that it goes into the seltzer. I love how I seltzer. thought Shirley Temple, you thought witches. That's well, fun. It's for emblematic you. of who we are, I think. <laughs> Recently, we got a review, and it called Quinn Salty, and it called me just so Midwestern. Um, thank you for that review. Thank it made us smile. Review. It made me smile, and then I had an existential crisis going, am I so Midwestern? And by thinking that, I further She became proved, more I became Midwestern more Midwestern, and then I made a hamburger helper. <laughs> also, if you haven't joined Patreon, I was thinking about it, and... You're always going to be able to join, but don't you want to be in the small few that have joined it before it's cool? You know what I mean? (laughs) Because we like that. So, like, listen, when you join, we're going to be so happy. We're going to welcome you into the fold. But just know the longer you wait, the more, the the less it means. See, that, my friend, is what we call real Midwestern. That is like peak fucking Midwestern energy where it's like, we're really going to appreciate it. But just know if it's a little later, I don't know what to tell you. Not so much. (laughs) Not so much. Well, speaking of Patreon, let me just say thank you to Ciara, who I sometimes call Ciara because I don't know how to say. You know what? I'm going to thank Ciara and I'm going to thank Ciara. And we've got to thank Mamela Pamela. Mamela Pamela. Oh, my God. Dear readers, we got the most, we got, we love our Patreon subscribers. We love them. They're from Dublin. They're from Dublin. Can you believe we have friends in Dublin? I think my favorite part. We are ladies about town. I haven't been to Ireland since I was in utero, so I am due to go back. My favorite part of this message from our dear, dear, dearest reader is she was like, I borrowed my mom's credit card. (laughs) (laughs) I think we can all relate to that. We can all relate to that. I mean, Sarah, that's how my dad became a Patreon (laughs) subscriber. And by the way, my mom just said to me, I think we need to cancel it because I have a Patreon subscription. Can't we just share it? And I was like, I think you don't understand the the spirit of Patreon, which isn't just that you're buying these extra episodes. It's that you're, in fact, supporting supporting the podcast. So it's basically the way I think it shakes out is like, just think of it as an allowance for your kid. (laughs) Yeah, if you're a mom out there, a participation there, get trophy. Your kid a Patreon subscription to our podcast today. I don't care their age. I don't care. They're Listen, ready. Start them young. Start Dear. them young being a patron. That's the kind of person you yeah, want them to you be. You want to teach them that. 
Value. Value. System. By the way, we what? just launched episode number two, our, your second part interview with Larry. Oh, around which the is time, excellent. Right? Yeah, you're right. That's coming out in, it's a hot topic one. You guys are going to love it. Um, But while we're talking Patreons, let me thank Mandalay, who, because we are good friends, I call Mandy. I also sometimes call her Lay, but she doesn't really like that. Thank you, Mandalay. Mandalay? Mandy. Thanks, Mandy. Thanks, Mandy. Of course, I'd be remiss if I forgot Janelle. Thank you so much, Janelle. Janelle. Welcome. Ugh. You did the right thing. If you're questioning it, I hope I just gave you your answer. You did the right thing. You did the right thing. (gasps) Carrie, we missed the biggest opportunity in the last episode. What? It was our 69th episode, and we didn't make, we didn't make any a 69 joke. jokes. So we're going, we're, but this is our you 69th plus one. never have that happen again. This is our 69th plus one. <laughs> so what if we did everything in relation to 69 months? Then we would be insane perverts. By the way, I just have to say, this just popped up, and I'm going to turn my Wi-Fi off because I'm so sorry, but it popped me if it freaked me out. I have this random number... That sent me a text January 28th. And then they, I was like, I no respond. I, there's someone sending me a message. And just now they were going, hey, I'm so sorry. I didn't have you on my calendar. Can you see me after 3 p.m.? Or I have to cancel. Life has been crazy. I don't know who this is. They think you're the therapist. Sounds like. Or a masseuse. And they also sent me a YouTube link, the first thing I nope. said. No, 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 no. And I'm no. not clicking on it. And it just said, feel free feel no need to respond. Should I write them back and say, no, this is not you, who you think it is? Carrie, no. Right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah, I would never. <laughs> You're killing me. I just Look, feel so you know what? bad. Do me a I favor. Feel... Do me a favor. I'm without turning thinking, my Wi-Fi off right now because I can't. Without thinking, you know how you can make a cue with a circle and a line? Okay, everybody. And me? Yeah, and you, Carrie. All the friends. Everybody listening, ev- all the dear readers who are not okay. driving, if you're driving, I want your hands at the 10 o'clock and the 2 o'clock. If you're not driving, I want your hands to make a circle with one hand, a line with another, just a straight line, and make the capital letter Q and hold it up. Okay, that's your Q? Q. That's so interesting. Okay. Now, did you make the Q so that it's a perfect Q to you, but would be backward to someone standing in front of you? That is what Carrie did. Or did you make the cue so that it is a cue to someone that would be looking at it and it would be backward to you? That is how I made the cue. Can I tell you why? Why? It's a test where if you do it I feel like I got trapped. You're a bad liar. Let me explain. If you do a cue that looks like a cue to you, it means that your mind automatically defaults to honesty, like this is a cue. If you had made a cue where it looked like a cue to me, but was backward to you, it means your brain is always skipping to how is this being perceived? (gasps) And it's a little bit sneakier. And it's a little bit like I am thinking about you're able to lie well because you're always thinking about what things look like in the other person's eyes. And it's interesting because when I did this experiment, I did the cue opposite of how you just did it. I am like my I am so... (laughs) so shocked you i don't think are you a good liar oh sure (laughs) do you lie to me often (laughs) 
<laughs> every day if I can help it. Did you Gotta lie to me yesterday when you want? Did you lie to me last week when you wanted me to stay for dinner? No, I always want you to stay for okay, dinner. That makes me feel better. I felt a little bit bad, and then I always always want you to stay for dinner. And then last week I I left Quinn's house. Quinn, we ha- you had a moment with like the baby sleeping, and then I went downstairs and I waved hi to Quinn's downstairs neighbor who's fully vaxxed. And he looked at me, waved, and waved me in and was like, poured me wine. And I just stayed there till midnight drinking. I mean, here's the thing, I did like a tour to your home. It was amazing. It was incredible. It sounds like I'm having, I'm being um, inappropriate with the people I'm seeing. But let me be clear, dear readers. I live with my husband, two children, and three gay men. It's not a sitcom. It's my life. It should be, though. Honestly? It should be. You want to hear a sitcom? I'm taking a shower with Griff. I put him in my lap and I have the uh, shower head just dangling to use it to spray him. And then I always open the shower door and lift him into a little Moses basket. Now we're in the shower last night and I'm doing this and I go to pick him up to put him in the Moses basket. And for some reason I'm looking and the whole bathroom soaking wet and I as I'm looking at different puddles, I'm seeing new puddles get made and it takes me, I'm not sleeping. So it takes me a few, like maybe 30 seconds to realize what's happened is Griff, as I'm taking him out of the shower, had grabbed the shower head. He knows how to grab and he's just spraying it all over the bathroom. He soaked the bathroom, but I couldn't figure out, I'm looking around and I'm just slow to react. So I'm like, why is the whole bathroom puddles everywhere? What's going? And then I was like, what? And then like had to take it out of his hands and put it back. Griffin is a strong, sturdy boy who knows what he wants. <laughs> and he wanted it to rain. He's also a big Lady Gaga fan featuring Ariana Grande. By the way, we have an out of date update. Do it up, sister. Um, so the official, there's already some like production photos of the Anna Delvey Netflix yes. show. Can't wait. I can't fucking wait. What and Quinn and I both know people that are involved in yes. it. Yes. Isn't it like becoming Anna or something? Or investigating, investing in it's something. Instructing it's something. In Either Anna. way, is yeah. by the way, inventing. It, inventing Anna. Do you the person that you know, do I know that person? Is that the it's Ben. Yeah. So dreamy. So dreamy. Dreamboat. That guy is such ben. a dreamboat. And friends total. with a total dreamboat. He's Belgian. What more do you want? The French fries. I want him with French fries and a waffle. With French fries on the side. With a little mayo on the side because it's Belgium. Bitch, she's here. <laughs> okay, by the way, you're listening to Truly. Darkly. Creepily. That's Carrie Ipema. And that's Quinlan Posner. And she puts the cue towards me. So she's a liar. <laughs> and she's a liar. That's Quinlan the liar Posner. And that's Carrie Midwestern Ipema. <laughs> oh, I like our nicknames. Of course, because you're salty and I'm Midwestern. Are we like a salty sweet combo? It would be really funny if they'd written, Quinn's a liar and Carrie's Midwestern. (laughs) This actually further, this is, okay, me getting described as Midwestern and you as salty is further proof that Colorado is not in the Midwest. Fine. Do we feel like that's good, that's good evidence? Yeah, that's pretty good evidence. (laughs) Yes. But also, you straddled the West Coast because of Hawaii, too. But then what, what do you call Colorado? West Coast. West Coast. Wow, that's aggressive. That's really aggressive. All right. I don't, you, do I strike you as very West Coasterly? You do love a lot of veggies. <laughs> <laughs> I eat a lot of salads. Yeah, West Coast. And I love to laugh while I eat my salad. Oh, dear readers, my gas... <laughs> 
I have gas, don't worry, now. I fart, whatever. I My gas in my building was shut off from Saturday until last night, which is five days. So I couldn't shower or cook or anything. It was traumatic because I love to cook. It's it was... great for me because Carrie came over ready to cook today. She's like, I'm making you dinner. And I'm like, <laughs> I have to done. pay you back because you always make me dinner. And I also want to make you dinner because it's stressful for you. You talked about how Australia it sucks. So I'm here to help. And also I get to then eat with someone. others better than eating by myself. <laughs> you know, while you were dealing with this no gas problem, I was dealing with the opposite problem. Too much gas? Maybe. That's not, that's not a good analogy. What happened is my basement flooded with shit water. But I finally got the gas back. It was great. It's kind of nice happy. when that happens and you get it back. You really appreciate it. I took the longest shower last night. Well, right. I told Quinn yesterday, I go, listen, if I come over tomorrow and I don't have gas, I'm showering at your home. I don't know why that would put me out. I wouldn't put you out. I just wanted to warn you. Again, I live in a sitcom. It's <laughs> the other thing you have to realize about living with all these people is that... Um, I also live in a hundred year old Victorian house with a lot of extra doors. So it's sort of like it's I like live, a farce. it's noises off. It's, it's straight up. It's like <laughs> slam the door. It's a lot of mistaken identities. Yeah. Is it right. time it's for me. me? It's you. Is it? It's you. It's me, right? It's you, champ or damper. Isn't it usually? It's you. Yeah. I don't know why I got excited. Yeah. <laughs> Turn off all that excitement because I'm going to tell you a story. I hope you're really bored. Whatever. Moving on. Here we go. Here we go. You know what I'm going to tell you about? Hmm. This great book I read called Rising Water by Mark Aronson. And do you know what the book was about? I think you're going to tell me. The Thai Cave Rescue. <gasps> oh. This happened in 2018. Let's start on June 23rd. It's a Saturday. We're in Thailand. The Mupa or the Wild Boars Soccer Club. Um this is a group of kids that play soccer together. Their age range is 11 through 19. And they have a day of soccer practice. And then 12 of the players and their 25-year-old uh, assistant coach, Ek, or Eek, let's call him Ek, it's E-K, Ek, decide to bike over to the nearby caves. It's called the uh, Tam Luang Cave System. And they're going to go over there for fun to explore it. Now, I want to explain something to you. Of these 12 players, three of them are what is referred to as stateless. Eck, the assistant coach, he's stateless also. Okay, what that is, is it's kind of like what we in America would call, when we call somebody undocumented. Okay. Basically, they're not Thai. They weren't born in Thailand. They were born somewhere else. But they don't have papers, Okay. That prove they like lack information about their country of origin, about their birth. So they're no longer actually citizens of their country of origin. So Thailand is like, it's fine. You can live here. Right. You can't leave and come back. You can't um, legally travel or work or study. But, but you, you can, can live, live here. So they're they're definitely more lenient than our country. Um. Yeah. But it's kind of weird that I think being stateless presents... Some other stuff. There's obstacles. I think it's a big struggle. The same way being undocumented here is. Totally, yeah. There's like 3 million people in Thailand that are undocumented. Or uh, that are stateless, I should say. Okay, so let's go back to talking about who's on this team. Knight, who's 17. Nick, who's 15. Bu, who's 14. Note, who's 14. Mick is 13. Dom is 13. Pong is 13. Turn is 14. 
Titan is 11. He's the youngest. Um, so we've got these 12 kids. The stateless ones are Ak, again, the team assistant. Mark, who was born in Burma. Adul, who's also born in Burma. And Adul speaks, like, every language. Thai, <sighs> Wa, English, Burmese, Chinese. So, and I bet all these guys speak English. And he's in eighth grade. And oh you're like, God. oh, my God. I can speak mm-hmm. a little pig Latin, and I even get a little confused when I do. <laughs> Screw it's it so up. so impressive. It's so impressive. Americans, we got to learn other languages. Come on. we got to do it. Oh, we have to try harder. T is 16. He's also from Burma. So the cave system. It's like six and a half miles of crevices and crazy tunnels and some are really small and tight and you have to crawl through them some spaces are really large and big and open so it's kind of cool because you'll like get into a tiny tiny space and crawl through it and then you'll be like ah and that's be like so this big, scary wide open. claustrophobic wise just the tiny right but <laughs> it's you know what it reminds me of is like the mcdonald's play areas totally yeah but nature Yes, McDo- I think nature was based on those McDonald's play areas. I, that's, nature was like, that Ronald McDonald, he really knows what's up. Life imitates art, imitates nature, nature. imitates McDonald's. <laughs> and that is the, well, that's the longer. Right. Um, the origin story. So the entrance to the cave is really like dramatic, like movie style, like picture fog like all around it and it's a really big dark mouth of a cave very beautiful the name of the cave system actually means royal cave of the reclining woman there's sort of this legend that's really cool about this princess in burma that was in love with this guy that wasn't royal and she got knocked up by him and it pissed off her family so much so she ran away from them and she ran into the cave And her dad's soldiers followed her into the cave and she was like, fuck it, and killed herself. So her body is thought to be like part of the mountain that surrounds the cave. And the cave is haunted by all these angry, sad spirits. Wow. Beautiful, right? I mean, yeah, don't love her killing herself. But like, she's like, fuck it, I'm out. I guess. The corridors and tunnels in the system, the whole cave system's like dry. Okay. Um. But there's four months of the year where they get monsoons. And then water fills the cave system, takes, you know, turns everything into like little rivers and totally floods a bunch of portions of it uh, completely. So it's like there's lakes in there. It's a mess. There's a sign in front of the cave that says, don't go in here. Don't even go in here. July through November. But... Remember, we're in June right now. Not only are we in June right now, but the year prior, the monsoons didn't even start till mid-July. So we're well within the realm of it's okay to explore. Okay. They're also just, they're like psyched because they're a bunch of kids that just had soccer and they're like set aside all these, all this time, like hours afterwards to go explore these caves they didn't tell anyone they were going to go do this by the way but they're going to go do it but they have a deadline like parents expect them home for one thing um it's knight's birthday that day and at five o'clock they all got to get back and have spongebob square cake for real oh that's what his parents got no way so they go inside the cave the first half a mile of this cave is like, picture it almost being like tourist-haved-ish. Right. Here's your walkway to enjoy the caves. It's like cemented. And then after that first chamber you go in, it starts to get dark. Right. And there's no formal trail you can explore. They start to progress through and they get deeper and deeper and deeper. 
they get so deep in the cave that they can't hear the rain start. They have flashlights so they can keep going even though it's pitch black. They do this for three hours. Yeah. And then they reach a big, one of those big open chambers again, but it's filled with water. So they're like, ooh, I guess, do we have to turn back or can we keep going? And they kind of fiddle around. Most of them can swim pretty well. So they start to swim across it. But then they're like, you know what? It's probably time to call it anyway. Let's let's actually go back. But then they can't totally figure out how to get back. They get a little lost, a little turned around. And Eck, the assistant coach, is like, you guys, don't worry. We're going to figure this out. I think maybe it was one of these tunnels. Let's go over and I'll go into it to check it out. Like, I'll dip under into mm-hmm. this kind of water-filled tunnel and see if it leads back to where we were going. And here's a rope and I'm going to attach it to me and I'll double pull it if I need you to pull me out. And if you don't feel anything, like you can follow me basically. So he goes in, pulls the rope, they bring him back and he's like, I don't think that's a good idea. You know what? Let's go over here. Oh, this makes my stomach hurt. We can dig along this channel. Maybe some of the water that's coming through will get redirected and that's blocking our view and I'll be able to see what we need to do because the water's rising. And they can't figure out what to do. So they find this little spit of like elevated land that's not in the water Mm -hmm. that's big enough for them to all rest on. And I think it's like, you know what? A poor Eck. I can't imagine being in that situation in charge of all those kids and trying to keep everybody calm and be like, hey, um, okay, th- does this work? No, not really. Does this, um, okay, that didn't work either. You know what, guys? Let's take a break. Let's sit down a minute. Let's reevaluate. So he's like, has all the kids. They go onto this spit of land and start trying to figure out what to do. Meanwhile, it's gotten late. No one's come home. No one's come to have cake. Um, one of the uh wild boars one of the kids did not go on this one of the, adventure oh, the, 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 the soccer team the, is wild boars yes okay. exactly whenever i say wild boars i'm talking about all I got the group very of kids confused for a minute but that makes sense right one there are no animals in this story if that helps yeah okay that's not naturally found in a cave okay um so one of the wild boars didn't go with them because he didn't have a bike cuz so at the end of practice they all biked over and he was like oh i don't have my bike i can't go the good news is he of course heard everybody being like this is what we're going to go do. Because remember, I told you they didn't really tell anyone. Yeah. So he ends up telling the coach. That's where they went. They went to explore these caves. And the coach is like, okay, and goes over there and sees it's pouring rain, sees a bunch of bikes outside the oh cave. God. Goes inside and, like, calls to them. Nothing. But he's like, fuck. So they start getting people to come to the cave to try to kind of gauge what's up. And they even call some of the local Thai divers who show up and are like, this is crazy. And they leave. So by the next morning, they've contacted, they're fast. They, they contact this English diver, Vernon Unsworth, who lives in Thailand. He comes. He knows these caves really well. Um, and he has a pretty good idea where the team might be. Um, it's called Pattaya Beach and it's just past a T-junction in the cave, but it will not be chill to get there. They call the seals. The U.S. seals or the Thai seals? The Thai seals. They call the Thai seals. They're really good divers. They've not trained in cave diving, which is super different than from open water diving, obviously. 
they also call in this really experienced diver, Ivan Karadzic. It starts to get kind of crazy because they're calling all these people. There's SEALs. There's parents. There's media. There's divers. Oh there's God. all these Muslims that are coming that are basically what they do is they hunt for bird's nests usually. So they're they're like, we know the land. They're combing the mountain to see if there's any way to help from outside the cave system. Wow. There's a woman that's like, oh, there's all these Muslims helping I bet they don't. They have to eat a really specific Muslim diet. She shows up and starts making a million Muslim meals a day to feed them. There's wow. What, what I just want you to picture is everybody is like, showed up. there's so Mr. Rogers would be right. happy. Yeah, there Look are the so helpers. many helpers. Oh. Everyone is finding a way and to also help. Also, have so many different cultures coming together. Beautiful. Yes, everyone came to this. It's so moving. What's crazy is. Eck and the kids have no idea any of this is happening. They're just sitting They're just like, I hope someone knows we're here. So the first step is that they start to make a rope pathway through the caves to to use as a guide to make it more user-friendly. They also start to identify spots in the caves, like I was telling you about, like good open spots that have some dry areas that could maybe be used to... Set up camp or like... Yeah, be like, here's some food, here's some extra air tanks... We're going to put um, a bunch of shit here for the people exploring so that they don't have to come all the way out of the cave to right. re-up on things. They're creating, like, a pathway for them. And, like, yeah, yeah that makes the sense. The major one of these they create, we'll call it Cavern 3. And the seals go back to Cavern 3, um, which is, it's like, an, Cavern 3 is about an hour's dive from there is the T-junction I told you about. Whoa. The seals make it to Cavern 3, get to the T-junction, make it to Pattaya Beach. They see bags, like kids' school bags or soccer bags. So they're like, oh, they're actually a little further than this beach and the water's getting higher. We have to retreat. But now at least they feel like they kind of know know where they are. But the water's getting super high, super strong. There's no way they can push further because they won't be able to see anything in front of them. And they'll actually even run out of air probably before they get to the next spot that they could resurface. Because when the water is so strong and fast and you're swimming against it, you're not going to... You're using more energy. And and you're not going to make it all the way to the next place. You're going to be stuck against the water. Oh, my God. The water gets so high, the T-junction is completely filled. It's still raining this whole time. Yes. (gasps) The T-junction is totally filled. And because it's a T-junction, the two streams of water coming are creating like an even crazier current to swim against. So that T-junction becomes really difficult to manage. So word is getting out. They're like telling all the divers, all the fuck everywhere in the world what's going on. People are flying to Thailand. Unsworth is like, you know who we should call? Rick Stanton, John Valentin. They are really, really good cave divers. Um, And again... Eck and the boys have no idea this is happening. What are they doing? They're fucking meditating at the instruction of Eck. Oh. He's like, everybody stay calm. Let's, like, rest. Let's try to be present. They don't have any food or anything, do they? What they do, no, of course not. No food. They're drinking water off fucking stalactites in the cave. Wow. And Eck is like, okay, we're going to take turns picking away at the rock. Um... Which is like doing nothing, to be clear. Like they have no hope of doing anything. But one thing it does do is it gives them purpose. And hope. 
and hope and it keeps them focused on something. And when they're not doing that, if they're meditating, they're all staying really calm. Um, Eck is like oh. really a warrior. So it's oh. now Wednesday. Okay. They've been there since Saturday, remember? Oh it's Wednesday. God. They start calling each other brother and they call Eck brother instead of coach. They like shift the vernacular, which I thought was just really touching. Okay, let's go back outside the cave. Mayor Charles Hodges is this U.S. Air Force commander. He shows up with 34 special tactics soldiers. How long has it been since they got stuck? It's Wednesday. And they got stuck Saturday. Thank you for clarifying. Wow. And Um, I was complaining about not having heat for this amount of time or showering. I feel really bad about my complaints at the moment. Right. So (laughs) these 34 special tactics soldiers arrive at 2 a.m., When they show up, the water is ankle deep where they are in the cave. Within an hour, it's two feet deep. So that's how quickly the situation is escalating. The next day, Thursday, it just continues to fucking rain. Stanton and Valanthan, those divers that they called, try to get to the T-junction. They get to Chamber 3, which, remember, is where they can get more food and oxygen and Um, That's also, they've set up water pumps in Chamber 3 to try to pump out as much water as possible. When they get to Chamber 3, they find four water pump worker guys that in the chaos fucking got left there and stuck. Like, no one's keeping track of, it's like, you're not doing buddy systems yet. We're not like, it's not, the problem with having this many helpers is things are getting overlooked. There's no organization. They need, like, someone to be like, who's going in? They need a fucking planner. They need a stage manager. So they have an immediate mission to just rescue these guys. So they have to dive them out with spare oxygen tanks. So they've now seen how crazy the conditions are in the cave. And they're like, this is impossible, actually, what you want us to do. But maybe something will change. I guess we'll stay. The next day's Friday. It's still fucking raining like hell. The sound inside the cave is almost deafening because there's sort of like this roar of rushing water echoing in this cave. Diver Ben Raymanens tries for the T-junction, makes a wrong turn in one of the fucking caverns, gets stuck, and the diver with him has to pull him out of like this tight cave by his fin. He freaks out and goes to the SEALs and is like, this is nuts. We have to call it. And the SEALs are like, we can't, we can't give up on these kids. We have to try. And as soon as somebody says that, everyone else is like, yeah, okay, we have to try. Because they also know that if the SEALs are going to try, they're the ones that aren't trained to cave dive. They only know open water. So leaving them to try... Is just a fool. They're just going to kill but more people. But they're like, yeah. let's get out of here. And the SEALs are like, no, we can't leave these kids. And so they're like, fuck, okay, we'll help you. <laughs> like, So they stay. Oh, my God. So they're looking at alternate ways to rescue. They're like, oh. what can we do? They are trying to make like helipad sites so they can fly drills. They're like, maybe we can drill into the cave and get the boys out that way. It sounds really crazy but the inside also sucks so they don't know what to do it's been a week at this point and the boys in the cave suddenly hear a whistle (gasps) and they're like someone knows we're here someone's trying to help us they're pumping out all the water remember 
where do they divert it to is like a big question. Yeah. They're like, we need to divert it to these farmers' rice fields. That's like what makes the most sense. It will ruin all these farmers' crops. And they're like, do it. Oh. All these farmers are like, fucking do it. No problem. Oh. Everyone's stepping up. Finally, Saturday comes and the rain lets up a bit. And the seals get more supplies into chamber three. And on Sunday, they're like, we are going to bring these all the professional cave divers back in. They get to the T-junction again, and they find the link that sort of leads into the rest of the cave. It's a really big victory for them because they're like, we know where we have to go. Monday, they get to the T- These missions they're going on take so long that that will be like a day's mission, what I just listed. So if you hear me say they find something, and then the next day, it's like, then it's like time to rest, time to go back out, time to go to chamber three and re-up, whatever it is. And then the next day they try to get further. So Monday they get to the junction again and they get to where the seals had finally gotten to in the beginning when the water wasn't as bad. They do this lane rope technique where someone dives ahead, lays rope, swims back. The next guy follows that rope, lays rope, swims back. Yeah. It's fucking exhausting, but they have to do it this way to be safe. Totally. They get to Pattaya Beach. They're running out of rope and they have to head back. So they find like an air pocket to look out of. And they see the boys. Yeah. The smell. <gasps> well, what happens is this. They find this air pocket. They surface in the air. Reeks. It smells like a fucking toilet. But they're like this. OK, there's people here. And they call out. How many are you? And a duel who speaks Every goddamn language in the book is like 13. And this diver Volathan says, brilliant, because he's British. Um, And Volathan starts talking with a duel. (laughs) And the first thing the boys basically want to communicate to these divers is that they say, we are starving and we are happy. Oh, I'm crying. It's so insane. I know. It's like, it's a lot. Oh, Um, God. They've been in the cave system 10 days with no food at this point. And Volathan tells them, you are strong. And he's like, we're, I know, Carrie and I are like weeping. Um, <laughs> it's, it's so, so beautiful. And also like these kids' parents. Know, oh my I know. God. Um, so he says, we're going to get you food. We're going to get you doctors tomorrow. This is great news. But they also have seen the kids now and imagine how the kids look. They don't look great, right? Yeah, They're starving. Been 10 days without food. So what is going on inside these divers' minds is, how the fuck are we getting these kids out? It wasn't like that chill to get to them. It's not going to be chill getting them out. That night, six SEALs and a doctor with SEAL training get tanks and food and do the five-hour round trip they think it will be five hours round trip to wow. get to them. It yeah. takes 23 hours to do the round trip. <sighs> Just so you understand how crazy this is, what they're doing. And they have ropes leading exactly the path now. Yes. Okay. And they're like, how the fuck can we do this? But there's all this pressure to make a move because the forecast is like there's bigger storms coming. Not only that, but with the water getting higher, there's less dry land in space. Right. right? There's more people coming in. We're actually starting to run low on oxygen yeah. levels. So basically the air should be at 20% oxygen. Yeah. It's at 15. Below 13, they're going to start to get woozy. Yeah. 
10, you faint. Six, you die. Okay. Okay, so everyone is wow. sufficiently creeped by how fucking dangerous the caves are. Okay? So an idea gets sort of bandied about that maybe we should wait for four months. For four months. We can shuttle shit into these kids. We can give them food. We can give them medical attention. And they can basically live in this cave system until it's dry. And then we can bring them out. Because that's how dangerous this mission is to get them out. That That's like, should wow. we just not do it, sort of. Because we think we can keep them alive. But it's like, we're, obviously, they can't go back and forth willy-nilly bringing them shit either. It's getting more really and more difficult to navigate. Yeah. They keep doing the hunt outside the caves, which they've been doing for a really long time now and haven't had any luck, but keep looking for a way to maybe, could we get in the cave this way? But that's just, it's not yielding any results. So they do kind of make this final choice. Like, I think we've got to find a way to dive these kids out. Not only that, we have to do it before this next storm. So the seals start doing dives, bringing tanks and supplies to different chambers in the cave. And the seals start to really bond with these kids and they're like teaching them chess and spending time with them before diving out. And the kids love them. It's so sweet. And chamber three is like becomes this home base, right? Right. And there's a seal captain waiting there for a group of divers. The group of divers has just gone to take supplies and tanks deeper into the cave. Right. And this particular dive has been 13 hours of work. Work. Wow. And this is after days and days of the same work. Wow. One of the divers gets back and is like, my diving partner was running low on oxygen. His partner was 37-year-old retired SEAL Lieutenant Commander Salmon Gunnan. He was retired at the time, but he joined the divers because he was like, I I don't care. I want to help. Minutes after this guy comes back, they find Salmon's body. He lost his respirator under the water. He had run out of oxygen. It was dark. He couldn't find it. He had other tanks with him and other respirators, but he obviously panicked in the dark water, couldn't locate them because it's black under there. And he lost consciousness and he drowned. So this is such a sober moment for everybody helping. Um, And it just speaks to the gravity of the situation and how truly dangerous it is. This is horrifying. Commander Hodges, who's the guy that brought in all the special tactics officers, is like, we have to get these kids out right fucking now. He convinces the Thai government, but he also says to them when he's convincing them, we have to do this now. We need to go in and do this. I think we have a 60 to 70 percent chance that we'll succeed. And I don't actually anticipate we'll fully succeed, that we'll get everybody out alive. But we've got to try. Oh, my God. And he's like, look, one of the biggest risks is that these kids are going to panic. It's going to be bad because if they're in the black water getting pulled and there's currents and it's scary, they're going to thrash and move around. And if they knock out their own respirator or the other diver helping them out's respirator, it's a very dangerous situation. And they realize in order to do this and make it work, they're going to have to fucking... sedate them yeah yeah they're gonna have to be completely out for the whole trip which is a long ass trip by the way so everybody's working together to like develop this plan um it's sort of 
is the most dangerous and complicated relay race you've ever seen, right? Totally. So everyone has their job, everyone has their role, but they need to practice it. So they set up like a fake cave system outside where there's water bottles with different colored tags that represent gas gas tanks. Like this is where the gas tanks will be. These ones are full. This is where you do the drop of the empties. This, 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 this. They're using chairs to represent chambers of the cave. And they're going to be able to communicate with walkie-talkies up until chamber three. Right. But then they'll lose all contact after chamber three. So you won't even know how the mission's going for anybody. No one will be able to talk to each other. Now, it's again, it's important to understand that the teams are from all over the world, right? Yeah. And they're being stationed throughout this cave system and everybody had a different job everybody had a different role and everybody fucking helps yeah so they have to find rescue equipment that's going to fit these kids so they get Thai student volunteers to go into a pool and fit them for masks and suits and stuff but they're we they have to see like if i put this full mask on you and pull you underwater does it come off does it get loose does any water leak in Oh, my God. Right? So they're shuttling food for a while to the kids. Um, They're getting them blankets. They give the kids the wild boars notebooks just in case they don't make it out so they can write to their families. I don't think they say to them, this is just in case you don't make it. I think they're like, do you have anything you want to say to your family? My God. Some of the notes they write are so great. This kid wrote, don't worry. Everyone is healthy. We really want to go out and eat so many types of food. Oh, my child. (laughs) Another kid wrote, teachers don't give us a lot of homework. And another kid wrote, another kid wrote, if I can get out, take me to eat crispy pork. Oh, I love them. I'm so sad. I know. Okay. So there's basically four divers that are up to snuff for making this batshit journey with a kid in tow. So that means if there's four divers that can do it, four kids can go out per day day they decide we've got to keep it a secret who the kids are like what order the kids are coming out right so that we think it'll be better all the parents everyone waiting on the other side will just be in it together kind of collectively sending this like energy that they want it to succeed it's like undue stress undue you also how do you how do you tell a parent that their kid is in the third trip you can't you can't exactly so they're not going to. And there's kind of rumors on how they decided what order to do it in. Um, how did they decide? I think what they ended up deciding, actually, is they started with the bigger kids and went to the smaller. And that had to do with um, wanting to see if they could. The, the most dangerous thing would be getting out the smaller kids because of the masks and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, they were really nervous about things fitting over the smallest kids. And Elon Musk during this is like, come he's like i'm gonna build a submarine to get them out like a weird tank that you can put the kids in and they're like maybe that'll work maybe if we give that a few days it'll happen like they just aren't sure what to do i so i think they did some of the bigger kids first um like x first x last of course he is but there was also like rumors that a lot of the kids were asking to go last and it was because they wanted to spend more time with the seals because they love them so much 
they're like big brother style and they've gotten super close to them and they were like i want to stay and play chess with this guy like i I love being with him also it's so scary you're like let someone else go first i guess right so they park 13 ambulances at the entrance of the cave and day one of rescue begins and the first kids to go are going to be night nick note and turn they give them ketamine and knock them out Mm. um and malinson is the first diver to try it and they call um they call the kids like packages and they call them wb1 so that's wild boar one is like what they're naming them he swims this kid out and he's scared the whole way he's like the mask seal if it doesn't hold i won't know what if water's leaking in so he has one hand on the guide rope that they loop through, right? Right. So he doesn't have to, like, navigate. And then he has one on the kid's buoyancy jacket. And his body is on top of the kid's to try to protect him from any stalactites knocking the, the mask. mask. Right. They get to chamber eight. He takes the kid out of the water and carries him with these other divers 450 feet. Then they get back in the water and dive again. He feels Wild Boar One start to stir. And he's like, fuck, the sedative is wearing off. This is a nightmare. Because, like, imagine if this kid wakes up how? in oh my the God. water, oh in my the God. darkness. Oh my God. Like, how panicked he would be. So he starts to get out the syringe to give him another shot of ketamine. And it gets knocked away from him. And the syringes start to float away in the water. He stays super calm and he somehow corrals the syringes back and successfully shoots the kid with another dose. But they were way off on the dosage because he has to do that two more times in route. The guys in chamber three wait to get a tug on a rope. They know when they feel a tug on a rope, it means that in 15 minutes, a diver and kid should arrive in the chamber. They get a tug and they're like, great. Roger that. And they are like, there's a fish on the line, like on their walkie talkies. Oh, my God. They arrive. They check the kid's vitals, put the kid in a stretcher that's on like a rope pulley system they made that goes through passageways and a fucking like chimney into what they call chamber two. Goes across 200 feet of rope. And not underwater. None of this is underwater. Right. Okay. Then a group of men grab the stretcher, hand carry it 15 minutes to chamber one. And they do this by passing it along because the risk of tripping or whatever. And I think it's just faster. They do it like. Yeah. And on Sunday, July 8th, the first wild boar is out of the cave system and into an ambulance. Oh, the other three follow. Oh, my God. So that's day one of the rescue. Wow. The next day, they pretty much keep everything the same. They figure out, like, a few ways they can save time and reduce, um, basically reduce it a little bit. Um, and they get it down to a nine and a half hour escape from start to finish. What which was is, the first day? I don't know. Long. Nine and a half hours. Holy so shit. So this day, they get Budom, Adul, and Mick out. Um, since it's working... They now are like, you know what, Elon Musk? Thanks. No, thanks. We feel like we've got this we, under control. We don't want it. Like, it's too risky to try a new thing if we just figured yeah. out that this thing is working. So we're going to stick with it. So on the last day, Tuesday, July 10th, that's the final day of the rescue. But they have five people 
Mm-hmm. Not four, right? They have the four kids left in Eck. So one diver has to take two trips, which is so crazy to me. It's just crazy. And because they've been swimming out. They're exhausted. The visibility is even worse. They've stirred up all the silt and shit. So it's um, the water's gotten murkier or like siltier. I don't know if that's a word. Anyway, they are in chamber three, the folks in three, and they get that 15 minute warning tug. And they're like, great, here comes one of them. 15 minutes go by, nothing. 20, 25, 30 minutes. A fucking hour goes by and nobody's there. They're like, what the fuck? Jewel, who's one of the divers, one of the four divers, tried to move a sleeping kid he was holding from one arm to his other arm. And dropped him. And lost the line. And was like, I don't know where I am. I'm going to stay calm. going to try to reach around and get the line. Can't find the line. Can't find the line. Finds an electric cable. And is like, reason tells me there's a good chance this goes to the same place as maybe the line does. Follows it, follows it, surfaces, and realizes it led him deeper into the cave. Not out the way he thought he was going. He finds a piece of land to surface with the kid. He's in chamber four. While the doctor's on his way out, because he's coming out of the cave, the seal that's also a doctor, he sees them and is like, let me grab the kid. I'll take him. They get to chamber three. So it's a panic that everything ends up okay. But there's fully this moment where they get that pull and they're like, nobody comes. But finally they get all the kids out. Wow. Mallinson is the diver to bring out the last and smallest kid. He's crazy nervous about the mask fitting. He pulls it as tight as he fucking can on this kid's face and goes, and everybody finally makes it out. What happens is that once the rescue mission's complete, the only people that are still in the cave are divers, and they hadn't done, like, really meticulous planning beyond getting this mission accomplished. So what happens is it sort of turns into what was once very organized becomes quickly very disorganized. And they're like, oh, we got to get all this equipment out. People start pulling all the equipment out of chamber three to evacuate the cave. The people in deeper have agreed to not start their dive till two hours after the kids, because Mm -hmm. otherwise they'd catch up with them because they'd be much faster without the kids. So they start their dive, but they don't now have any emergency support. Because everyone's been clearing the cave of extra shit. Oh, my God. So they get to chamber three. And one of the seals yells landslide. And they realize that one of the water pumps has burst. Or, and this could have been it, or might have been turned off. Like they might have just been like, we're done. Let's turn the water pump off. So water starts shooting into the cave that they're in. Some people have tanks. Some people don't. They're just rushing as fast as they can to get the fuck out of there. And they're yelling and they're texting ahead to people in in other chambers. Get out. Get out. And they make it. Is everyone out of there? Everyone gets out. But it's like a movie where it's like they are. The water is coming so fast that picture water's filling areas they're in and their face is grabbing air and going under 
Like your face is looking up as water fills all around you and you're grabbing your last breath of air going under and out. Wow. (sighs) Incredible. I can't believe there's... And so there's only one casualty? Yes. So the kids all go to Chiang Rai Hospital. Um, They're all okay. Nobody has any lasting physical damage. A couple of the kids are treated for pneumonia. Um, Probably thanks to their meditation, we don't care about a lot of psychological damage, really. Um, Really? I mean... I can't imagine them going back to caves. No. One thing it does do is it makes Thailand have to take a closer look at the problem of stateless people. Mm. Because it put statelessness in the spotlight that so many of the kids in the act were stateless. And also it was really interesting that statelessness can be something that's really looked down on in a way. Right. Or stigmatized. And you have a duel who's the one that was able to communicate with the rescuers. Um, And he's this sort of emblem of he knew all these languages, but he doesn't have a place in Thailand. Wow. It's. I don't know. It's so interesting. So all these kids write messages to Sergeant Sam, is what they call him, the man that died. And they all agree, this is so interesting, to get certified as monks. That's a common thing to do in Thailand because what you do is you can serve a certain amount of time as a monk and you basically incur merit by doing that. And then you can choose who you give your merit to. Oh. So it's like a lot of kids it's like karma points or something a lot of kids do that and give their parents their merit but like all these kids are like we're gonna go and be monks for a certain amount of time and we're gonna give the guy that died for us all our merit and Eck actually goes the extra mile and he becomes a monk it's such a beautiful story and such a crazy story and I can't wait for the made for TV movie are they are they making a movie? They must. They have it's to be. Wild, it is so cinematic. It? it is so scary. I remember, oh God, like I don't know if I could watch that movie. That sounds so scary. Like so, so fucking scary. scary. But what a wild ride and what they what did a for happy those ending kids. and such a beautiful I know, story. I too. just Mr. Sam. Oh, I know. Ugh. And he was from where? No no. Mm. 37. And he came, was retired. And retired from... I mean, I, he probably had Ugh. a job. I want to be clear. He was retired, a retired SEAL. Wow. Right. Your turn. Okay. I'm doing the story of Michael Alig. Alig? A-L-I-G. Alig. I got the information from Wikipedia, Guardian, People, New York Times, Deadline, Rolling Stone, Daily News, NBC, Variety. So this guy, Michael Alig, he's born in South Bend, Indiana... He's a really smart kid. He's gay. And at the time, he was born in 1966. So, obviously, being gay was really hard. Was that what I want to say? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a fair characterization. I feel like being a gay kid in Indiana in the 60s and 70s and 80s probably fucking sucked. Let's just call that what it is. He should have chosen not to be. You guys, come on. You guys, she's kidding. He was bullied in high school, obviously. His parents divorced when he was young. His dad really disapproved, Mm -hmm. obviously. 
tale as old as time. At 17, Michael moved to New York to go to Fordham University in New York. He didn't graduate from Fordham. He ended up transferring to FIT, the Fashion Institute of Technology. And there he met the boyfriend of Keith Haring. Do you know Keith Haring? He's like the... Of course I do. He meets the boyfriend of Keith Haring in like... 80s, early 90s, and he gets connected to the party scene. And what the? <laughs> Is someone working downstairs? Hopefully, right? Super chill. Super chill, everybody. Okay, so he starts, so he gets connected to the club kids in New York City. So he starts working at clubs as like a busboy, and then he moves up to become a club promoter. And then becomes a member of this club kid. Now, the club kids in New York City at the time were during the 80s and 90s. And it was a bunch of what they call like misfits who came together and and were very flamboyant. They had personalities. They wore costumes. It was described by someone at the time as being part drag, part clown, part infantilism. Sounds fun. It sounds fun. Lots of drugs. Right. Right. So, like, it's fun, but pretty... Infantilism is an interesting word. It's a very interesting word to use. That is a quote that somebody that said. That means like a baby? Like child, like being a child. I don't know. Maybe just like... I'm picturing raves with people with pacifiers. It's basically... I, I, lots of raves, lots of lots of parties. Okay. Like I'm feeling like Paris is burning, but it says in the 80s and 90s, so it's after the AIDS epidemic or during or after the AIDS epidemic. So I think it's like antithesis of the Reagan conservative movement. Do you know what I mean? Okay. So it was sounds like, fun. It was club kids fun. So they were doing drugs like ketamine. <laughs> Connection of stories. <laughs> I guess um, that's... Special K baby. <laughs> RuPaul was a member of the club kids at the time. Amanda wow. Lepore. Do you know who Amanda Lepore is? She's the one with the huge lips, like plastic surgery. Like she looks almost like um, Jessica Rabbit. Okay, okay. Right? At the time, this club kids got a ton of media attention. Uh-huh. Like they would go on like talk shows. And so conservative media loved to like just spear them and criticize them about not upholding family values. The Michael would go on talk shows as a young lad in the club kids movement and like talk about his lifestyle and would have to defend it and all that stuff. So he was known amongst this community where he would stage huge, memorable parties. In 1988, he's hired by the owner of the Limelight, this guy Peter, which eventually shut down because the FBI found that drugs were being sold on the premises. Imagine. Imagine. So surprising. Word spread. He was hired by other promoters um, to promote their parties. And then he would host these, like, outlaw parties where he had parties in found locations. Like, I imagine it kind of like immersive theater, but he would have parties at, like, a Burger King or Dunkin' Donuts or at a neglected part of the subway system, the MTA, um, abandoned houses. He wasn't a good guy. Okay, this Michael. Okay. Okay, let's like, I know he sounds like a fun RuPaul, but like Michael, not a good, not a good, I wouldn't call him a great host. He was a great moment maker where he would throw $100 bills on the dance floor and then just like watch people fight over them. That doesn't sound fun. No. He also would pee on guests or pee in their drinks. What? Like he just was a shitty asshole. Just an asshole. I really don't like this guy. You shouldn't like him. He's an asshole. He would like stage falls and knock people out. He 
he did a lot of drugs. He kept getting arrested for drug use. He would go to rehab. He would come out. He would use rehab. He would, like, continue that cycle for a long time until in 1995 his boss sent him to rehab, and then he fired him. So he's out of jail because of his crazy antics. And at the time or shortly thereafter, he was diagnosed with a personality disorder. That's right. Specifically histrionic personality disorder, which... Histrionic personality disorder apparently is defined as high levels of attention-seeking behavior, which would, I guess, explain away, like, the $100 bills, the peeing on people, like, all this stupid shit he was doing. Um, He says that doctors said it was the most extreme case they'd ever seen. Sounds like that goes right along with his histrionics. Yes, exactly. (laughs) It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy, and it's like... Everybody says I seek attention. And I saw a doctor. And they said it's the worst case I've ever seen. (laughs) I think someone had said in the materials that I was reading, it was like, it was a personality disorder that just made him be a fucking jerk. This plus his job, plus the community that he was in, is like the worst combination of anything ever. Among this club kid scene is this guy, Andre Angel Melendez. He's involved in the club scene. He's a bartender. He works at the clubs. He sells drugs, which is pretty common obviously amongst this group. He was fired after his boss found out that he was selling drugs, which I think it was probably just like the FBI found out. And so he was like, the boss was like, ah, you're fired. Mm -hmm. So he moves into Michael Ailig's apartment, who he shares with Rover D. Freeze Riggs. We'll call him Freeze. Okay. Very cool. That's his name. So we have Angel, who's staying with them, who's who's dealing drugs. Yeah, we have Michael, who's this histrionic personality disorder jerk. So on March 17th, 1996, Alig and Freeze are high on drugs, and apparently they get into an altercation with Angel. Over this altercation is that there's a drug debt that hasn't been paid. It sounds like it was Angel who's like, you need to fucking pay me for all the drugs you've been consuming. The fight turns physical. Freeze and Alig claim that Angel attacked them, and was shaking him. And in self-defense, Freeze grabs a hammer, hits Angel over the head. Because they're all high on drugs, Alig and Freeze don't really remember. They're, the information is unclear. However, Angel is dead. They kill Angel. By hammer. By a hammer, although... His cause of death is asphyxiation. So they say they hit Wait. him with the hammer. They hit him with the hammer, and then Freeze says that Alig smothers him with the sweatshirt. Okay. They take the body of Angel and they put him in a bathtub. They douse it in bleach. There's reports that they inject him or they put chemicals down his mouth and duct tape his mouth closed. Just to double down. Just to double down. But they douse his body in bleach. They put it on ice in the bathtub and they leave. They're very high on drugs at this time. Not that that is an excuse. So is their plan like, we'll deal later? We'll deal later. The body stays in the apartment and I guess it's reported that they still had people over. (gasps) The body starts decomposing and starts smelling horrible. And so they put cologne and other chemicals on it, and they decide what to do. Freeze Riggs, this guy, he goes to Macy's. He buys a bunch of knives and a box. And him and Michael Alig are like, what do we do? What do we do? After Freeze offers Alig 
10 bags of heroin, Michael Alig dismembers the body. He cuts off his friend's legs, puts them in separate garbage bags, throws it in the Hudson, then takes the rest of his torso, puts it in a box, and also brings that and throws it into the Hudson River. Huh. As you remember, this guy had the medical condition of being a jerk. (laughs) Yeah. So after this happened, Michael starts telling everyone that he killed Angel. What? Oh, right, because he wants attention. He wants attention. He tells everyone they killed him. Most people are like, oh, it's for attention. <laughs> okay. They like, don't They're believe like, sure. him. Okay. Because Angel is a gay Latinx person, I think he falls, like, the police aren't, aren't investigating, looking. aren't doing the shit. They're more preoccupied with the drugs being sold on Peter, the owner of Limelight's place. So, in fact, Michael... While he's still on drugs, weeks after the killing, he's on TV and he sarcastically says about Angel Melendez, he was a copycat, so we killed him. That's what he says on TV. April 26th, a month and a week later, a guy who hears him bragging about it puts like um, a blind item in his village voice column. So no names are used, but everybody knows who it is. In fact, because he had like reported on Michael A. Lake earlier. The next day, the New York Post page six column ran it. And then the New York Magazine quoted A. Lake, who's like being evasive. The police didn't question Michael A. Lake until September 1996. Keep in mind, he killed him March 17th. This item was in the New York, was in the Village Voice, April 26th. September 1996, months later, they finally questioned him. And they were questioning him because they were focused on the owner, Peter, because they wanted Michael to testify him, yes. testify against his old old boss for drug use in limelight. So people were so convinced he would get away with it because Angel was gone. Michael's bragging about it. No police are even following up. Finally, the box washes up in Staten Island Oy. and it's discovered by some kids. Oy. What? In October 1996, Michael is reported to that Village Voice columnist, uh, Michael Musto. He's reported as saying, I know you think I'm a murderer. Does that mean you won't co-host my upcoming birthday party? <laughs> like, no. No No remorse, remorse nothing. Angel's brother, this time he's like, why doesn't the police care? And why doesn't any of his Angel's supposed friends? It's weird. I'm getting like John Early in search party vibes. Totally. <laughs> totally. <laughs> well, yeah, that's, yeah, it's just like really. Ugh. And it, it's so sad because it's this person. The person who was killed is already at risk. You know, mm-hmm. he's a person of color who is gay and the police just don't aren't fucking investigating or not I, taking aren't it following seriously. up. Not well, this person's seriously. walking around saying I did it. Who's like, saying I fucking did aye, it. Aye, aye, aye. November 1996, that's when the body was identified as Angel. So November 1996. At that time, Michael's like, oh shit. So he leaves and his boyfriend, who's a drug dealer, rents a, a hotel room in Tom's River, New Jersey. He leaves New York. The police obviously can locate him. He's then arrested. This is months after the disappearance of Angel Melendez. So, Freeze Riggs, the roommate, confesses to the police that Angel was attacking Michael, shaking him, and then yelling, you better get my money or I'll break your neck. So, Freeze grabbed the hammer and hit him over the head. 
Then he hit him three times with the hammer, and then Ayla grabbed a sweatshirt or pillowcase, smothered him, and then they freaked out about what to do with the body, poured chemicals in his mouth, duct tape. Like, that's that's the story that they have told the police. They've also said that they were really high on drugs, so they it's a little cloudy. They don't totally remember what happened, but they claim self-defense, and then they panicked and got rid of the body. They almost did not charge them for the crime because they wanted them to testify against the owner of the club for allowing drugs to be sold at his property. Oh, get it together. Like, drugs are more important than Angel's life. Get it fucking together. So finally, they offered Freeze Riggs and Aleg a plea deal, and they accepted it in October 1997. He pled guilty to first-degree manslaughter and sentenced to 10 to 20 years. While in prison... Michael was, like, still talking to his friends and all that stuff and, like, trying to stay kind of relevant. Like, apparently he was involved in Twitter and would, like, talk to people over the phone and they would tweet for him. Mm -hmm. He told that Michael Musto, the Village Voice columnist, he said, I know why I blabbed. I must have wanted to stop me. I was spinning out of control. It's like the old saying, what do you have to do to get attention around here? Kill somebody? He went to prison and then he went to a psych ward and then in 2000... He was put in solitary confinement because he tested positive for heroin. Oh, no. So there's no one he can get attention from. Yeah, but also sounds like this guy was really addicted to drugs. Yeah. (laughs) It sounds like he had a real fucking problem. Every time he would, like, try to get sober, he talked about how he would go through the horrible withdrawals and then he wouldn't feel better because he was like, I fucking killed someone. I'm terrible. I might as well just keep using. And I'm just, it's amazing to me that, like, in prison, you can still use these drugs so easily, it appears, mm-hmm. you know? He apparently was in solitary confinement for two and a half more years. So he was in solitary confinement for a long-ass time. He was first eligible for parole in 2006, but was denied because a movie came out starring Macaulay Culkin as Michael Aleg called Party Monster. And apparently the parole officers watched it, denied his parole. <laughs> By the way, I watched a preview for this, a trailer for this movie. It looks so bad. This movie is the movie that he made after a hiatus since Richie Rich. Oh. This was that movie. I don't remember. Oh, but he's like and that in was his makeup. comeback movie. I think. And he was like, don't pigeonhole me. He's I like, can I'm be... not a child actor. And so he plays. I'm a monster. I'm a monster. He plays this like club promoter, bad guy, killer, drug addict. Do you think he and Kieran are close? I can imagine. It would be hard. Would it? Kieran's so successful. And Macaulay w- was. But I think Macaulay didn't want to be anymore. Because of MJ. Oh, my God. Too much controversy. Controversial. But maybe. Um, <laughs> in, 2000, in July 2008, he was eligible for parole again. He was denied because of another positive drug test. When he was in solitary, he started working on his memoir. By 2009, he finally got sober. Freeze was paroled in 2010. Michael Eilig was finally released on parole in 2014. He was sober. When he got out, friends and supporters came, and, like, apparently someone brought a rubber hammer when oh, he was leaving. Oh, that's not a good look. And he, they did an interview after him, and he was like, I'm trying to be sober. I'm trying, you know, I don't know, you know. I'm trying to not kill my friends with hammers. I'm trying to not kill my friends with hammers. And 
I'm trying, like, how do I cut these people who were my family? I mean, think about this too. I think it's an interesting conversation of like, he left his family because he didn't have a place and he found this like club kid group that supported him and quote, loved him. I, I'm hesitant to say love in that way because it sounds like it was not a healthy relationship, No, but it also sounds like it was a place of belonging for this person. Okay. In some fucked up way. Do you know what I mean? Sure. He talked about how he didn't want to cut anybody off because he had abandonment issues. Um, and also he didn't want to hurt anyone's feelings. <laughs> Which that to me is shocking. Noble. Very noble. What a good guy. Mm-hmm. So um, while he was on parole for three years, he had a curfew at 8 p.m. to 7 a.m. He had to do regular drug tests. He had anger management therapy. He had job training. While he was on parole, he didn't really have any other skills. You know, it's like, so he did interviews. He wanted a reality TV show. At one point, he tried to do an exhibition of his artwork. He tried to sell a memoir. October 2014, he released a pop song. Um, so finally, in 2017, Jack he was... Jack trade. Jack Master of None. He was released from parole in 2017. And in 2017, right after he was released from parole, he fucking hosted a big party. And in 2017, he was arrested for drug use outside of the Bronx Supreme Court. After he threw this party in 2017, he got death threats, which feel like I can understand why people were upset. A couple months ago, at 54 years old, he died right before midnight of a heroin overdose at his Never apartment in it. Washington Heights. No. The reason I found this story was because I was on the Twitter... I think the New York Times did an obituary because he was just this known person from that time in the in history, in New York history, that's, like, pretty well-known of, like, the 80s and 90s. Mm-hmm. And everybody was talking about Michael Alig, and nobody was talking about Andre Angel Melendez, mm-hmm. the actual victim, the mm-hmm. person who died. The actor, um, Wilson Cruz, who played a- Andre Angel Melendez in Party Monster spoke up upon the death of Michael Alig, and I want to read what they said. Andre Angel Melendez was a son, a brother, and was loved by his family and friends. He, as so many young people in the 90s, longed to find a place where he belonged and where he felt safe to express who he was. He took on a club persona of an angel, and when I played him in the movie Party Monster... I felt and understood in a profound way that those wings were as much a prayer for his own safety and protection than for any cosmetic effect. I think he knew he needed protection in the world he'd found himself in, the only world I think he thought was available to him. Tragically, it was there that he met his ultimate demise at the hands of his murderers. His head was bludgeoned, he was doused in bleach, and dumped in a bathtub for a week before his legs were hacked off and he was thrown in the river. Another young, brown, queer boy murdered, and he wasn't even centered in that story when it was told. Andre Angel Melendez was a son, a brother, and a friend. He was more than an anecdote in a murderer's obituary. He was the lead character in the movie of his life, and today I choose to remember him. Rest in peace, Angel Melendez. Oh, that's so nice. It's beautiful. And I think I understand... really true about the framing of it. Totally. Uh, I mean... The cops were like, this is such a side note to us. Can we figure out this drug bust? (laughs) Totally. Right. And I think even in this story, even all the information I have about Andre Angel Melendez is through the eyes of Michael Alick's conviction and his life. Mm -hmm. And I think um, I'm really 
grateful to Wilson Cruz for writing that. And I'm really glad to include that in this story. His his story, his life has so much more value than mm-hmm. just being an anecdote in Michael mm-hmm. Eilig's. I mean, that's the story of Andre Angel Melendez. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for telling it. You're welcome. Um, wow, it's it's been a, a very loud day here at, <laughs> at, at headquarters. <laughs> I don't know how much you guys are hearing, dear readers, but between children in the yard screaming and some shit shoveling of some sort happening <laughs> in the basement, I would love to not be ankle deep in, in shit. shit water. Is it ankle deep down there? Yeah. Wait. And how did you discover it when you guys went down to do the laundry? Uh, our neighbors were using our, you know, we let Jared and Nadine do laundry here. That's so nice. Yeah, they of have you. a key for the side door, so they go to the basement and do laundry. And they were like, "Guys," and I was like, "What?" And she was like, "I, I, there's a little leak." And then she's like, "But don't worry about it." And then she came back to take her laundry out and was like. Okay, okay, so it's really serious now. It's really, really very serious, and I need you to know, I didn't do anything. And I kept saying, what did you do? And she was like, no, no, no. It just, I went down, and I didn't, it's not even coming from the machines. And I was like, what did you do? That's so nice that you let her do laundry here. It's just so I can sue her when something like this goes wrong. Totally. (laughs) So after a loud day with shit floors and loud children, I think we deserve a break. Let's go take one. Let's go take one. Hey, dear readers, we love you. Join Patreon. Oh, and also, um, if you guys could review us and rate us on Apple. Oh, we'd be forever in your debt. And you can call me as Midwestern and Quinn as salty as you want. Yeah, come uh, tell us more. About, tell us more about tell us. Tell us more about us. We love talking about us. Tell us all the things <laughs> you think about. Unless it's negative. If it's negative. I don't want to hear it. Honestly, well, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it at all. Thank <laughs> you.